good morning. Transitions are hard, especially unexpected transitions. Uh, when I finished grad school, we were going to Chicago. I was going to Wheaton, and literally last minute, somebody presented the option of going to Biola University. And uh, yeah, but it was sitting out with the family and saying, "Hey, we're going to go to the West Coast." And even though the kids were all involved in sports programs. Uh, it was an interesting conversation to sit down and talk about it. And again, I think this transition that we're going through offers us an opportunity to have a conversation. So the elders asked me if I would lead uh, for the next couple of months some thoughts I have about uh, how to view the Christian life that might serve as a conversation starter for all of us. Now, if you know anything about me, you know I love C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis has this great quote, and it's called, it, it reads... Life is made up of first things and second things. Get the first things in place, Lewis says, and the second things follow. Now, what does he mean by that? Let me give you my interpretation. How many of you are the youngest in your family of origin? Show of hands. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Me too. I have two older brothers, which means you're the test dummy of life. (laughs) Is that not true? Your older brothers think of things for you to do, and you do it because you're the youngest. So my brother Ken middle brother, brought home some fake blood in a bottle. It was called vampire blood in a bottle. What sick toy manufacturer thought this was a good idea? So he grabs me. We go back to the back bedroom. He said, Tim, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to lean the dresser back. I'm going to shove it against the wall. It's going to make a really loud noise. You're going to lay on the ground. Blood is going to be coming out of your nose, your ears, your eyes. Mom will come in. This is going to be really funny. Okay? I was like, oh, Okay. So he makes a really loud noise. I'm laying, Ken totally overdid it with the blood, blood everywhere. My mom's a very timid woman. My mom comes running in the bedroom, and I'm like, Mom, Mom. And she goes, Tim, Tim. And she's, I go, Mom, look, it's fake. It's just fake. <laughs> My timid mother was like, oh, Tim, you fake. And I'm like, Ken backed up, got on a bus. We didn't see him for a year. <laughs> he left. Uh, um, I could give you story after story about the Real Hot Brothers. We had a huge oblong pool in Detroit. My mom said no more swimming for the day, so we were throwing a Frisbee across the pool. Uh, Frisbee hit the water, sank. The Mulehoff Brothers, not being rocket scientists, we grabbed these poles and were trying to get the Frisbee, not realizing that the poles were jagged on the edges. We're ripping the liner every time we go down. Just as my dad comes home from working triple shift at General Motors, the pool collapses. We flooded three backyards. As my dad is walking up the driveway, water is rushing past him. Small animals are going past him. He walks in the backyard. I couldn't even let go of the pole. I was like... So my dad sat us down the next day. True story. Said, come August 11th, all three of you are going to do something? Can't say no. This isn't a conversation. You're going to do it. August 11th, all three of you are going out for football because I'm going to knock the goofy out of each one of you guys. And, you know, we did it. We, we, we did it. My brother Bob went on to play uh, college football. We did wind sprints in the backyard. We watched what we ate. Um, when we would go to bed, we would do all these calisthenics. Do you see what happened? Football became the first thing, the operating thing, and then everything else was under football. I wonder if we read the New Testament cover to cover, what would be the first things that would emerge from the New Testament? What are the things that are operating principles that we are to have everything else come under? Now, what would those be? Well, listen, I've come up with five. For the next five weeks, I'm going to present what I think 
are the top five first things that I think we need to consider. Please know this is totally subjective. You might come up with five different ones. This could be a great conversation starter. But if you did pick your five first things, what would be the first of the first things? What would you pick? Here's what I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick the awe of God. The awe of God. Now, why is that my first thing? Because the absence of an awe of God, we have a bunch of derivative problems that come from that. If we don't have the proper amount of awe towards God, it deeply affects our evangelism, right? I'm not going to share with you because I don't know it'll make any difference, and I don't think God's big enough to actually change you. I think it produces anxiety. Hey, is God bigger than my problems? I mean, these are significant problems I'm having at home, uh, at school, at church, uh, my health, and I don't know if God's up for the task. I think a lack of awe even feeds into our propensity to sin, right? If God's not majestic, if he's not other, if he's not holy, well, then I can sin, and what's the big deal? You know, sometimes when we encourage college students to get into accountability groups when it comes to different issues, we always say to these students, now, don't pick, like, your best buddy to be your accountability partner, okay? Because if you blow it, and you come to him and you say, hey, man, I really blew it yesterday, and your buddy's like, oh, that's fine. Well, that's not a great accountability partner, right? So the lack of awe produces huge problems, I think, in the life of the church, and I think that's where we're at today. You see, the church has always wrestled with God. A friend of mine, Crawford the Ritz, says, when I say the word God, the first thing that comes into your mind is the most important thing there is about you. So the church has always wrestled with having a balanced view of God. They've always wrestled particularly on two levels. On one level, we want to recognize that God is transcendent. Right? He's other. So, uh, Psalm 113, 4 to 6 says, The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high. Who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? That is transcendence. God is not like you. Now, if that's all we focused on, we'd have an imbalanced church. God would be other. But the scriptures say to us, no, no, no. He is transcendent, but he's also imminent. There's imminence. He is with us. So look what Jesus says. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Two pennies was nothing, right? So you can buy five sparrows for nothing. Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Isn't that amazing? God is aware of all the sparrows in the earth. Indeed, uh, and yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Yes, that causes me existential angst. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than sparrows. So if God knows about the sparrows, he knows about you. Put both together, we have a balanced view of God. And often in the scriptures, you see both being played out in the exact same passage. For instance, look at Psalm 95. For the Lord is the great God, the king of all gods. Transcendence. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care, eminence. Both of them right there. Now, I think slowly the church is imbalanced, right? If we were to look at Islam, we would say it's all transcendence. But the church today, I think we've slipped away from transcendence. We've gone towards eminence too much so leading one theologian to say this. 
The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has not done deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation more tragic. So I think today we've moved away from transcendence for really good reasons, and we're now stuck in imminence where there's no sacred anymore. God is too familiar to us. Now, I want to give you um, evidence number one that I think this has happened. Now, please cover the ears of the children because theologically I'm about to argue there's no Santa. Okay, so hang on. If I were to ask you, what does this word mean? What would you guys say? What does Abba mean? And, it, and who said daddy? Daddy, if you were to ask many Biola students, what does Abba mean? They would quickly respond, daddy, right? The picture of an infant crawling up into the arms of a father saying, daddy, okay? Love that idea of God. Here's the problem. That word doesn't mean that. It means father, A great word. I mean, when Jesus showed up on the scene and he starts referring to Jehovah as father, people were like, whoa, what gives you the authority to do that? And Jesus gives it to his disciples, says, hey, when you pray, I want you to pray, our father who art in heaven. The disciples were like, no, 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 I don't, no, can't do that. Now, the reason we think this word Abba has always been father, not daddy, there was a word they could have translated, they didn't. Uh, It means... When you were young, you would call your dad Abba. You would call him father. And that that would stay your entire adult life as you can continue to call him father. This even referred to people outside of your family that you greatly respected, a man. You would call him Abba. You would call him father. Now, it is nothing wrong with having those deep emotional times when we approach God as if he were our daddy. I mean, you're that raw that you're, you're approaching him that way, but we cannot change a word to meet a felt need. Now, I know some of you are saying, no, you guys are becoming the language police, right? Two weeks ago, you took away my word awesome, right? <laughs> no, I can't say awesome because that only, you know, that's God, so some of you are going to be like paranoid after, the, after my sermon. You might want to say, wow, I thought his sermon was awesome. If that's the case, say awesome. Please, just, <laughs> and then confess it later. I don't know. But all right, so Abba is a great radical word. Let's not change it because we wanted to spice it up a little bit and add the daddy aspect to it. It's already a radical enough word. I want to take a look at an individual, Moses, who meets God and sees both the transcendence and the imminence all wrapped up in one experience. It's a powerful passage. Because I later want to address the aspect of my life that exhibits the least amount of awe, and that's my prayer life. Okay? So Moses, um, you understand the situation, what's happening in Exodus. The children of Israel underneath Egyptian rule, and it's cruel, it's vicious. I mean, it is slave labor, literally. People are dying. Moses gets so frustrated about it, he literally kills an Egyptian. And then he leaves the scene. Now he's out in the wilderness. You can imagine the people of Israel saying, what, what, what is going on here? Every day is worse than before. And our so-called leader is gone. We're, we don't know where he is. I love, before we get to the passage I really want to look at, don't forget this reminder in Exodus 2.25. And God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. 
Men and women, God's concerned about this church. It didn't take him by surprise. He knows what's happening. He knows everything that's happening behind the scenes. He knows the plans of the elders to deal with this. He knew what Mike's heart was. Uh, This didn't surprise him. And how awesome that he's concerned for us. Right? He's transcendent, but he's concerned for us. And what we need is what Moses needed before Moses was going to become a change agent in the narrative of the Israelites. So we get this great moment where Moses comes across a burning bush. He's led there by the angel of the Lord, and and he sees eminence. I mean, he sees transcendence, right? This is a bush that is in flames, but it's not being engulfed. Now he has an interesting encounter with God. When the Lord saw that he had gone over and looked, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, you get the two right there. Transcendence, the bush is in flames. Uh, Eminence, Moses, I know your name. I know who you are. I've been watching. And Moses said, here I am. Isn't it interesting? Here I am in front of the great I am. Powerful scene. Now here's what I want to ask. What do you think Moses did next? What do you think he did next? Do you think he gave God a high five? Awesome. This is awesome. Ouch. That hurt. That was flames. Um, do you think he tried to do a selfie with God? Okay, God, get in the picture. Get, no, you're not all in the uh, Okay. What did he do? Here's what he did, and I think it surprises us what he did. Uh, God says, do not, oh, I'm sorry, I got to, oh, here we go. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Boy, don't you love that? Moses, we're having a conversation right here. Please do not treat this as a normal conversation. It's not. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. I'm later going to argue we have stopped doing that. And I'm not saying literally take your shoes off, but we have stopped acknowledging that prayer is a sacred, holy moment. And then he says this, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Modern translation, Evie Free Church, I was the God of the last 60 years. I'm the God of the next 60 years. I was faithful to Chuck. I was faithful to Dale Burke. I was faithful to Mike. I will be faithful to the new set of leaders that come in, the new person. I am at action right now. Trust me. This is not taking me by surprise, and I'm using this situation to have a unique conversation with all my children at Every Free Fullerton. Now, what's Moses' response? At this Moses did what? This surprises us. He hid his face. He hid his face. Remember what Dr. Swindoll said to us, right? Remember when he said um, uh, that uh, you had the seraphs, right? Angels that are only mentioned a couple times in the Old Testament, but there's six wings. They're called the burning ones. If a seraph were in this room right now, all of us would be underneath the seats. We could not even look at such brightness. But notice the seraphs in the presence of Adonai uh, one set of wings had to cover the eyes of the seraphs because the seraphs couldn't even look on Adonai that way, right? So in the midst of this burningness, what did he do? He covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now we recoil at that. Oh, no, no, God's my buddy. He's my friend. He is. But the buddy and the friend part won't matter unless we retain the transcendent part, Right? Um, it'd be one thing if I said to you, hey, this weekend I hung out with uh, Dale McKenzie, a high school friend. You'd be like, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, another friend joined us, uh, Chuck Swindoll. 
excuse me, you're friends with Chuck Swindoll? Oh, absolutely, I'm friends with Chuck Swindoll. He's a good buddy. He'd be like, Chuck Swindoll? Yes, Chuck Swindoll. You'd be like, now that's kind of cool. I think we've kind of lost it a little bit. Hey, is God your friend? Yes. Is God your Abba, Daddy? Yes. It's like, ooh, I think we've forgotten who we're talking about. Right? The bigger we understand what's happening, then when, he, when God initiates us, we get both. We get the transcendence and we get the imminence. I love this far side cartoon. After 23 uneventful years at, at the zookeeper's snake house, curator Ernie Schwartz has a cumulative attack of the willies. <laughs> you know why I love that? In my prayer life, do I ever get the willies? I don't think so. I mean, let me describe my prayer life. Get up in the morning, get a cup of coffee, have to. We're Americans. We got to have that coffee. I got to have coffee. So I have coffee. My feet are kicked up on the table. Uh, I'm kind of dozing off as I'm praying. You know what I mean? And, And I don't know about your prayer life, right? I can hang with the greats for literally three minutes. For three minutes, I'm with the best prayer warriors you can imagine. Fourth, fifth, sixth minute, crazy questions start to come into your head. Is this not true? I'm I'm praying, drinking my coffee, and I'm thinking, how hard is Yiddish as a second language? Why do police officers have locks on their lockers? Do you know what I mean? Crazy thoughts. At the same time, I'm supposed to be praying. I'm supposed to be praying, and it's like, I mean, I would, I'd love to get a heavenly picture at that moment. I'd love to see what's happening. Archangel Gabriel comes up to God and says, what are you doing right now? Well, kind of listening to Mielhoff, but he's kind of been in and out, to be honest with you. <laughs> I got other things to be doing right now, right? So remember, go back to what Dr. Swindoll said. What was, what was Isaiah, the most righteous man in Israel? What was his response to seeing what he saw in the temple? He was undone. Am I ever undone in the presence of God? Do I ever have that moment where I realize, oh my goodness. Now, let me, let me give you an illustration. I, I think what had really brought this home for me, that my prayer life lacks awe, that I'm imbalanced. So when I first came to Biola University, a friend of mine was here, J.P. Moreland. Uh, I do apologetics. I speak for our apologetics department. J.P. Moreland's one of the top Christian thinkers like in the world. And uh, he knew we were coming. And so he said, hey, when you get to campus, let's have coffee. I said, awesome. So I show up at his, um, awesome. (laughs) Super cool. (laughs) Because I've always thought of JP as my daddy. Um, No, no, see, stop, no. So I show up 10 minutes early. There's no way I'm being late for JP. And I'm standing outside of his office. Honestly, his door's closed. And I'm thinking, "What, what do I do? Like, like, what do I call him? Do I call him Dr. Moreland? Do I call him JP? Do I call him my liege? What? 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 So I literally took a deep breath and I went, well, okay. And he said, come in. Do you know I never do that with God? There's never a moment with God when I'm like, okay, I'm about to go into the throne room, the king of the universe, a God who is a consuming fire. Okay. No, I'm on the elliptical. Praying. I'm walking my dog, Ginger. Praying. I'm praying, and my phone goes off. It's like, oh, hang on, God, universe. Hang on. Clicky. Oh, yeah, see, this is an ESPN update. And just hang on. i got to see if Serena won. 
So now listen, I want to make one theological point very clear before I offer us a corrective. Does God hear you just as well on an elliptical or on a spiritual retreat where you've been fasting the entire day? Does he hear you just as clearly? Answer is absolutely yes. I'm not talking about God down. I'm talking about us up to God. I don't believe I'm talking to the God of the universe when I'm on an elliptical. I just don't. It's too casual when I'm driving in the car and so distracted, right? I don't think, I, I don't think I'm really doing it. So I want to offer us corrective. I do think we need to pray for our church. We need to pray for our elders. We need to pray for David Fletcher. And yes, we need to pray for Mike. What would be the next steps in his journey? We need to pray. But I want to, I want to offer us a corrective prayer. I want to say this next week, let's pray in a different kind of way. A way that focuses on the transcendence. Now, if that's all we did from here on out, we would need a corrective to the corrective. Okay, But for now, I want to reclaim prayer in a way that helps us focus on the awe of God. So here's my corrective. Please, you have total freedom to do this or not do this, but this has really radicalized my prayer life. First, let's eliminate casual prayer. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says. That is why so many of the old masters counsel caution. Be slow to pray. This is not an enterprise to be entered into lightly, yet I always enter into prayer lightly. So let's get rid of casual prayer. Yes, Paul says pray without ceasing, though I I think we even misinterpret a little bit what he's saying there. But yes, prayer ought to be in our lips all the time. But not if God just becomes something we do on an elliptical machine. So for this week, let's eliminate all casual prayer. Now, what does that look like? As I'm driving in the car and I think to myself, I need to pray for David Fletcher, I don't pray then. I wait until I have my official prayer time which could be at my office, it could be at home at the end of the day. Amazing how many of the ancient saints would often pray in the morning hours or at night is the time that they would pray. So again, I save my thoughts for when I'm actually going to have my prayer time. Okay, so one, eliminate all casual prayer. Um, Use the prayers of others. This is so convicting to me. Eugene Peterson says this. If we insist on being self-taught in prayer, our prayers, however eloquent, will be meager. Now, what does he mean by this? So, how many of you watch The King of Queens? Remember the show, The King of Queens? It's about this married couple, and uh, they argue periodically, of course. One day, she buys this, like, um, dictaphone headset where she can just talk, and it actually transcribes into her computer. She buys it and is trying it out. He comes home late, and they get into an argument. She takes the headset off but doesn't turn it off. So it is literally transcribing their argument. Later, they both read it and are horrified what they sound like. I think it would be very interesting if you read the transcripts of my prayer life for the last month. Boy, what it would sound like. I have two kids in college. One's about to graduate. I pray for him all the time, you know, graduating out into a market, uh, what the job market is today. I pray for him. My uh, middle son is a great kid, wants to go to law school. Hello. How do you even pay for for law school? I don't want to have to go back to modeling. Um, (laughs) Not sure how to interpret that. That it's not dying down. 
I have a senior in high school on a football team. We've already had two injuries, right, uh, that have happened, significant injuries on the team. I'm just praying for safety. Uh, Noreen and I are married. We, we speak at family life marriage conferences, you know, stuff like that. So if you listen to my prayers, what would be the transcript? Uh, God, uh, Mulehoff Kingdom item number one, Mulehoff Kingdom item number two, Mulehoff Kingdom item number three, number four, number five, number six, number seven. Okay, about this, I've got to write that book. Remember, i got that and this and that and this and that and that. And then you feel guilty, don't you? I feel guilty. Oh, and world peace. (laughs) How did Jesus teach us to pray? Don't, oh, the Lord's prayer is so thoroughly convicting. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as it is in heaven on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. I completely inverse it. Let me start with all my daily bread needs. And then let me get to your kingdom items, right? So I started, I found a book. Don't read it. It's, oh, it's horrible. It's so convicting. Don't, somebody gave it to me. It's like, why would you give me this? And it just thoroughly convicted me. So I thought, I'm going to pass this on. How many of you have heard of John Bailey, Diary of a Private Prayer? This is his, these are his prayers written out that you can do in the morning and the evening. Oh, God above me, God who dwellest in light unapproachable, teach me, I beseech thee, that even my highest thoughts of thee are but dim and distant shadows of thy transcendent glory. Sound like your prayer? Now, that sounds like Shakespeare to me in some ways. So I prefer to have a warm-up before prayer, right? And um, so I like to go to the Psalms. Listen to what Psalm 111 says. Great are the works of the Lord, they are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. Just like a runner prepares to take a run, when we're going to have that prayer time at the end of the day, in the beginning, when you walk in, I, w- I want to prepare myself. Right? I want to say, I-, I need to remind myself of the person, the being, my God that I'm talking to. I need to remind myself that he is in transcendent light, that it's holy, 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 the seraphs say. Why? Because then that I get to call him Father, and that the God of the universe at that moment is listening to me is utterly remarkable. That blows my mind. We can talk later one day, if you want to, about how, why that's true. The doctrine of omnipresence is a fascinating doctrine. It quickly means this. The God that surrounds you... Now, remember, God's not in the podium. We call that pantheism, right? But God surrounds you... Uh, is paying 100% attention to you. Uh, A.W. Tozer said, if you want to know what God is like, jump into a pool and be submerged in water. Imagine the water is the omnipresence of God. It completely saturates you. Well, God, when you actually go to talk to him, 100% of his attention, believe it or not, is on you. Don't waste that opportunity. And never get comfortable with it. So again, something to to warm me up just a little bit to say what I'm about to do and I get to call him father is amazing. But then the third thing is I think we've really neglected this one. Let's incorporate our bodies into prayer. Nothing betrays that I don't believe what I'm doing more than the position of my body when I'm praying. Listen, if you came into my office, right, my office hours, and I'm sitting there with my feet kicked up on the desk, my hand behind my head, and I'm scrolling on a, uh, my iPhone, and you're trying to talk to me, what's your number one gut-level impression of me? He's not paying attention. Milhouse not fully here. 
right? Mike, if Barry Corey walked in that room, if, if um, J.P. Moreland surprised me and walked in my room, what would I do immediately? Stand up. I, w- I would say, Dr. Corey, c- please come on in. Absolutely. No, I'm sure you're busy. I am not too busy for you because I'm applying for promotion in a year from now. Um, <laughs> right? No, come on in. I am, and I would yell out, hey, hold all calls, nothing, right? This is me and Barry Corey. I don't ever do that with God. God gets interrupted by everything. Why? Because I'm always doing something else when I'm praying. So I want you to, what really cemented this for me was watching one of my favorite movies, To Kill a Mockingbird. So you're going to see a scene of Atticus Finch. He was a virtuous white uh, lawyer. Do not read the prequel. It will destroy that illusion. Uh, A virtuous white lawyer um, who, uh, uh, an African-American man, has been accused of rape by a white woman. Well, guess what? In the racist South, done deal. Atticus is going to take the case because he believes the African-American is, in fact, innocent, but all the jurors are white male men. So he knows he's going to lose the case, but does it on principle. And in fact, he loses the case. What you're about to see is the end of the scene where he had just gotten the verdict. All the African-Americans have been forced to sit up top, including his two kids and one girl is named Scout. You'll notice she's sitting down because the whole book is really about her losing respect and getting respect back for her dad. But I want you to notice what happens when he leaves the courtroom. Okay, let me use you as my group, my test group. Why did they stand? Out of respect. Right? Your your father is passing. I wonder if we shouldn't do that for a week in our corrective. Right? So so we're not going to do casual prayer. We're going to have our prayer times. It could be in the morning, evening, both. But when I walk into that time, like a runner preparing to run... I do a warm-up. I read through a psalm. I read through Bailey's prayers. Then when I actually have it, let's either take your shoes off, kneel, or I pray with my arms extended like this. And then I pray to God, my Father. But when my hands start to come down or I just get distracted, I literally acknowledge it. I say, God, I'm going to take a little break right now. And I take a break. (sighs) Okay. And I give God my undivided attention. We all get distracted. So my prayer place needs to be a place that minimizes distraction. Again, God doesn't hear me any better because my arms are raised. But for me, I have come to believe I'm in the presence of God and he deserves my undivided attention and my body ought to show that in some way. Let me close with a quote and a story. This is Brennan Manning. I thought he did such a good job summarizing what I'm trying to say. I want neither a terrorist spirituality that keeps me in a perpetual state of fright about being in right relationship with my Heavenly Father, nor a sappy spirituality that portrays God as such a benign teddy bear that there is no aberrant behavior or desire of mine that he will not condone. I want a relationship with the Abba of Jesus, who is infinitely compassionate with my brokenness and, at the same time, an awesome, incomprehensible mystery. Both. I have a friend of mine. His name's Kent. Uh, He he has a friend, pretty amazing, who is a U.S. ambassador to a small island nation. He cracks up about this friend. This friend has two butlers, 
two cooks, a security detail of 10 individuals. Uh, Every place the ambassador goes, there's somebody called a protocol officer who precedes her. If um, an ambassador were coming to EV Free, the protocol officer would show up one week before and he would literally address all of us. He'd say, listen, two ways to refer to her, Madam Ambassador or Her Excellency. Also, do not reach out to touch her. She initiates contact. Also, do not rush up to this woman. She has a security detail that will not go well. Okay? The protocol officer tells you all of this. My friend cracks up at that because Madam Ambassador is, in fact, his mother. <laughs> he loves being in public with her. He loves it. Everybody walking up and saying, Madam Ambassador, Your Excellency. And he said, you know, those moments remind me that I have such a unique relationship with my mom. Everybody else, Madam Ambassador. By the way, I get to call her mom at home. He said, but every once in a while, in public, it is so good for him to look at her and say, Her Excellency. And they both just kind of smile at each other. The great thing about first and second things, Lewis said, get the first things in place, the second things get thrown right in. So if we retain an awe of God, guess what? We get all the intimacy we could. So I'm going to have us pray. And I would like for you to do whatever is comfortable. If you want to stand up and raise your arms and it signifies and reminds you of what we're going to do, if you want to kneel down in the aisleways, if you want to take your shoes off, if whatever you want to do, you can sit in your chair and maybe just cup your hands like this, saying, I'm going to remind myself that right now we're entering into one of the greatest mysteries of the universe, that we are going to communicate with the consuming fire, the God of the Old and the New Testament. So, let's pray. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we ask or think. Father, we do not take this moment for granted. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are Jehovah. You are Adonai. And yet, you're also our Father. You have told us repeatedly to Pray, pray without ceasing. Come to me with your request. Father, we confess that we've erred. We've erred sometimes treating you like a butler, treating you like a buddy. Father, I thank you that you're well aware of this church, you're well aware of our needs, our fears. Thank you as a world spins out of control, as we experience the largest refugee crisis since World War II, it humbles us to think that right now you are listening to us. So Father, I pray for the health of this church. I pray for our leadership. I pray for people in this congregation that need to have conversations for the negative communication spirals that may be happening. I pray for forgiveness, the addressing of bitterness. Father, we thank you. We 
do pray this in Jesus' name, ever mindful of what had to happen to him for us to pray in his name. And we do as loved children of our Heavenly Father. Amen.